Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 18th, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And it is playoff time, folks. Finally, playoffs are here. The final 32 teams, never the top 32 teams, but the final 32 teams of the 2013 Division Three football season will take the field starting next week to whittle themselves down to the two who will play for the 2013 Division Three football national championship in Stag Bowl 41 at 7 p.m. on a Friday, December 20th in Salem Stadium in Salem, Virginia. And Keith, so we got those 32 teams on Sunday afternoon, and um, I guess I don't know how surprised you were. Uh, Twitter gave me some impression, but I have to say that for the first time in a few years, not surprised, maybe pleasantly surprised, that uh, all eight at-large teams that we projected actually got in. It, it seems to me like the NCAA actually followed their own rules correctly. Pat, I, I thought you, you hit it on the, the nail on the head in the column they wrote on Sunday evening where you said some years it's a strength of schedule year and some years it's a winning percentage year and I I was sort of in the camp of you know maybe they will go at Wabash um, you know maybe like 55 45 leaning that way for the last bid and I know there were there were some uh, Wabash fans who were confident on Twitter and on our message boards. And then there were some, there's some really knowledgeable guys who broke down the whole field. And I don't think they were very confident from about Wednesday on. And then it got worse on Saturday because that, uh, you know, Millsaps uh, losing the roads kind of uh, created a triangle where it brought Wash U into the mix. And I don't, uh, well, that's, that's pool B. And I guess that, that, and then there was the, um, the St. John Fisher and Alfred game. And, and St. John Fisher's strength of schedule kind of had uh, had the Wabash fans worried. You know, in Pool C, nobody big. There were there were no big upsets, no unexpected losses, and uh, so that that field, you know, it, it could have gone any number of directions, and you could have justified it looking at the criteria. And I think that's you know the confusion that we have. Maybe confusion is not the right word, but the because there's wiggle room in it every year, I think it, it leaves a little room for interpretation, and it, it creates some of that drama on Selection Saturday night and Selection Sunday. And um, when you are able to project all 32 teams and the drama ends up being not all that much drama at all, it's uh, it's actually a little bit surprising when you, when you nail all 32 because there have been times when you've you've made that case in your projections on Saturday night going completely by the letter of the law, and then something happens uh, in in the actual selection process, and they pick one or two teams that you didn't have in. Yeah, I, I really think that uh, the, the key game on Saturday that made it kind of all fall into place is that St. John Fisher-Alfred game. Uh, if you picture, even though St. John Fisher and Alfred come into the afternoon uh, pretty close, obviously, in the regional rankings, and, um, you know, have some similar some similarities... In their uh, in their criteria, you know the numbers and the uh, facts that the NCA committee uses to select teams. You know the the fact of the matter is, St. John Fisher's candidacy was much stronger than Alfred's was, and uh, I think the key game really comes down to St. John Fisher having defeated Washington and Jefferson, which is gives them two wins against regionally ranked opponents, which is something that really you know. There wasn't anybody else on the entire board that had. And even though uh, St. John Fisher was the last team in of the five uh, at-large bids in my projection, I would not have been surprised 
if the committee took them even higher, frankly, because, you know, you look at, uh, they had an above 500, a significantly above 500 strength of schedule. It's not just above 500, 575, two wins against regionally ranked opponents, even though they were opponents that were fairly down in each region's ranking. Um, those are still, you know, those are still wins that Wabash didn't have. Uh, they're wins that Thomas Moore didn't have. Um, you know, they're wins that Oshkosh didn't have, although certainly Oshkosh had a pair of impressive losses. Um, and when it gets down to it at the end of the, at the end of this process, when you're looking at whatever piece of data you can get to, to try to get, uh, some separation between teams and get somebody who you can justify putting in the field. Uh, I think that's a, that's a really significant factor. Now I have to say though, again, um, even though to me that makes perfect sense and, uh, to you, it may make sense. Sure. As well. Um, you know, we have been through those years where, it has been a winning percentage year and not a strength of schedule year where it has been, you know, whatever nine and one team we can find to plug into this field, we're going to take that Bridgewater state. And so the, you know, in a, in a situation like this, it's just nice to see that in some sense, three years in a row, we have had a two loss team taken over a one loss team. We didn't have as many of them maybe last year as I would have liked, but we have had it three years in a row. Now it's almost as if we're so close to making this a trend. Um, so close to the point where coaches are going to start scheduling this way. And then I'm sure, unfortunately, being the pessimist that I am, uh, that bam, uh, next year or the year after, we're going to go turn right back around and we're just going to take all the nine and one teams available. That's, that's the worry that I have because it seems like from year to year, there's just not enough consistency in this process. Well, let's not jump ahead to the... Oh, no, I want to jump ahead to 2014. Are you kidding me? No, I get not, you. Not the, the, the future mistakes that haven't been made yet, because I do think <laughs> the the bracket that was selected today is a big victory for not just you know strength of schedule and, and encouraging coaches to schedule those big games early in the season, but uh, it puts the control back in the hands of your head coach or in your program. In other words, St. John Fisher had a choice to schedule someone like Washington and Jefferson and to be honest, Otterbein, which was a team that was coming off the eight and two season in the OAC. Uh, they, you know, they went out and scheduled good teams. And so they could have very easily finished nine and one if they played someone much easier. And you could make the same case for Wash U, which scheduled uh, Wisconsin Whitewater. You know, they, they played a, a 10 and 0 team where they much, very easily could have, could have scheduled somebody else in that uh, in that week one hole and and played a you know a game that it could have won and it had been nine and one and 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 maybe had had uh, made it a little easier on themselves on on the uh, the day of selection but I, I think when you look at who got in and who didn't get in and, and I know we'll get to that in, in a little bit the teams that played better teams non conference got in and the teams that didn't you know, maybe through no, not not much fault of their own. I shouldn't say no fault of their own because they certainly could have been more aggressive scheduling wise. But you know, two of the, there were two really great teams that were very highly ranked in our poll who uh, who played Alma and Alma finished one and nine. They won in week eleven to get their first win of the season. That didn't help them at all in strength of schedule, and it certainly was a missed opportunity. The week you play that that weak team, a missed opportunity to pick up a win over someone who might end up regionally ranked at the end of the season yeah uh so oshkosh at the end of the season the strength of schedule number we have for them 488 heidelberg 476 both of them zero and two against regionally ranked opponents um 
you know, forget uh, shoot. If those two teams had played each other, then I would think the winner of them uh, of that game might have had a, a shot at getting in instead of his St. John Fisher. But um, you know, then again, Heidelberg uh, had the opportunity to try to take care of business against Mount Union, and if not able to do so against Mount Union, had a chance to try to take care of business against John Carroll and did not do that. Oshkosh. You know, they had the chance to uh, win their conference championship. And when that didn't happen, they had a chance to basically win the elimination game on Saturday in week 11 against Platteville. And they did not win that game either. And, you know, to be honest with you, uh, you know, there's a there's a, you know, a school of thought that playing regionally ranked opponents, even if you're 0-2 or 0-1 against regionally ranked opponents, I bet that's better than being 0-0. Uh, and we had a couple of teams on the board on Saturday who were 0-0, had not played a, a single regionally ranked opponent all season. So 0-1 might be better. 0-2 might be better, too. But, you know, 1-1, like Pacific Lutheran or Platteville or Illinois Wesleyan or John Carroll is a heck of a lot better than either of those offers. Yeah, to, to quote a, a very wise Division three scholar, you know, it's not who you lost to, right? It's who you beat. And you, you can't feel sorry, or I don't feel sorry for, for a, a team that finishes third in its own conference and had two chances to get in, you know, via the, the pool A bid and then, you know, having a chance to, to beat somebody significant, somebody that would finish regionally ranked and finish nine and one and, and sort of have that signature victory to go on their resume along with, uh, you know, being nine and one because there were a handful of, of one loss teams that got left out. And most of those those one loss teams, they were missing that that signature victory as well as the big strength of schedule number, and um, and, and you know whatever else goes along with it. So I I, th- I think if if you step back and you and you know or I guess if you're unfamiliar with how the process works and you just look at these 32 teams and go, man, there's a lot of two loss teams in the field. Well, those are all the teams that won their conference. And so, you, you know, if you believe in the AQ process, then you, you, you can't knock eight and two teams getting in uh, at the expense of a bunch of eight and one and nine and one teams that, that had better records. But those those better records weren't necessarily uh, stat made against, you know, great, great um, lineups of teams. And there, there were some really good eight and two teams that, that played tough schedules as well, both of the. Both of the Mayak teams, you know, St. Thomas and Concordia Moore had had a huge uh, strength of schedule numbers and, uh, and and they didn't get in either. Yeah, for St. Thomas's candidacy, you know, it comes down, I'm sure, to the St. John's game. If they had been nine and one um, going into Saturday, I don't think we would have this discussion. I think St. Thomas would be in and uh, we would find somebody else sitting home. And I don't think we'd uh, I don't think anybody would lose a lot of sleep over that. I think that uh, would be completely understandable. Um, you know, in the end. Uh, our pollsters looked at that game and continue to look at the, that game and think, well, you know, they lost to their bitter, bitter arch rival, uh, you know, by uh, the result of a missed field goal at the end of the game. You know, a pollster can look at that and say, well, fairly subjectively, yeah, you know, that game, that loss probably only happens that way two out of 10 times, maybe three out of 10 times. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a black and white result and it goes on. Uh, it goes on your record that way. The same with Oshkosh. I mean, I would have to go back and look through, but I'd be surprised uh, if we had at any point in the 11 years that we've had both pools and a D3football.com top 25, if we've ever had a number 11 team in the country not get in uh, as an at-large. 
Well, we've definitely had some teams in the teens. And if I were to be able to take a break from this podcast and run downstairs, I could actually pull out some previous brackets where I, I usually, when, the, when I print the bracket out, I'll mark down the, the, B, the teams that got in via B and C and where they were ranked in D3 and then the highest ranked teams that, that were left out of the poll. And um, I know Wheaton uh, has been in the teens and, and missed it with two losses. Uh, I, I believe... You know, even last season, uh, man, the years kind of start to run together, Pat, since we've been doing this so long. <laughs> but, um, but they, you know, when Case Western, Reserve, and Endicott both got left out at nine and one, there were there were that there was really highly ranked uh, two lost teams, and there were nine and one teams that got left out. And so this has been going on for a couple of years now, and I think that that is kind of runs concurrent with the shrinking of the available bids in pool C to be honest with you last year, for example, Wisconsin Platteville left out at eight and two. They were number 13 in uh, both the final regular season poll and the final overall poll. That would be the highest uh, team left out. Uh, Wheaton was 21 last year and they were left out at eight and two kind of not totally dissimilar to uh, where they stand right now. So far out of the conversation that, you know, we don't really talk about them. They were behind. Uh, they'd probably be the, third best two-loss team, and we had a couple of one-loss teams that didn't get in. Um, you know, taking a quick scan at uh, the previous year, for example, 2011, <laughs> similarly, Wheaton at uh, 18 in the final regular season poll at 8-2 and two, did not get in. Baldwin-Wallace, uh, Bethel 21, or 23 and 21, respectively. Again, you know, a, a little bit further down the list, just... Um, and if you guys are interested in going back and looking through these yourselves, uh, you can find every top 25 poll that we've ever done back to 2003 on the top 25 page. And that uh, red bar at the top, it gives you a menu of various previous years. And go back and look at the uh, at the final poll and see the teams who have only played 10 games. Now, exclude the Skyac because often that's a nine-game regular season, which ends with a one-and-out in the playoffs. Um and, uh, you know, there are potentially some Northwest Conference teams that might end up that way. But for the most part, those would be the kind of teams that we're talking about. Um, so we talked about, uh, you know, talked about St. Thomas not getting in. Uh, and, you know, I don't think uh, after our discussion last week, I don't think there was anything too much more to add to that. They got what they needed in the one piece of help that could have helped them because St. John's lost to Bethel as expected, but they probably needed another loss uh, somewhere else to help them out. And they were really trapped uh, pretty deep in their regional ranking. You have to think that they were probably the fourth best or possibly the third best at-large team in a region when there are only five teams coming out overall. It's going to be really hard to do that. Uh, on the Pool B side, remember Pool B are the teams that are in conferences that don't have automatic bids or those handful of remaining uh, pure independents. So, uh, you know, when the, when the weekend started, I think we were pretty confident that Wesley was going to get in and get in if they won. Um, and maybe even if they lost, although that's less likely. And of course, a mood point, um, Framingham state was in good position if they won. And then that left us with the kind of, uh, triumvirate of Wash U, Millsaps and Texas Lutheran Millsaps was unbeaten coming into the weekend. Uh, Millsaps as much, uh, had as much control over its own destiny as you can ever have in pool B uh, because no team that has run the table in pool B has ever gotten left out of this 28 or 32 team playoff system. 
Um, and Millsaps goes and loses to Rhodes. And not only is that a loss, but here's the key, of course, that um, you know may not have uh, may not have struck you uh, until you read our playoff projections or you know did some deeper digging yourself. Uh, when Millsaps lost to Rhodes, that is a pretty key factor there for WashU because WashU beat Rhodes. And if we remember Keith from a couple years ago, the year that. St. John Fisher in 2011 got the at-large bid over Case Western Reserve. It was one of those things that was really buried pretty deep down. It might not have necessarily noticed that uh, it was because St. John Fisher had beaten University of Rochester and uh, Rochester had and Case Western Reserve had lost to Rochester. So that common opponent at that stage in the game is pretty uh, is pretty significant. It, it's a, a rare data point. We so rarely see head-to-head competition between playoff at-large teams uh, because usually someone has to lose that game and that kind of knocks them out of contention in a lot of cases. Uh, and we very rarely see common opponents. But, you know, as, as you and I know, Keith, WashU has played Rhodes forever. They've had a, a really great competitive series and, you know, Rhodes and Millsaps have been in the same conference for, you know, quite some time. So that's a, that is that is a game that is a common opponent and it swung Fairly significantly, I'm sure it did in my mind anyway, in WashU's favor. Yeah, Pat, you know, there are five primary criteria, and we tend to really focus on two of them because they're the ones that everybody know, has. Well, right. They're, 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 the, they're the ones where you see the separation. In other words, winning percentage is the main one, but you, you, we're always talking about undefeated or one loss teams, occasionally two loss teams. So, you, you know, winning percentage is sort of obvious and it's right there in front of you. Um, strength of schedule is the one where you see the big separation between teams that have, you know, something in the 420s and teams that have something in the 570s. That's a big difference. You, you see that, that the strength of schedule a lot. The wins over regionally ranked opponents we talk about a lot because that is a, a, a more clear way, I guess, to look at strength of schedule, not only who you've played, but who you've beaten and also gives you credit sometimes, as we mentioned, you know, for, for close losses by virtue of um, having played good teams versus not having played any good teams at all. So we talk a lot about regionally ranked opponents, strength of schedule, the winning percentage. The ones we don't talk about are head-to-head competition because, as you said, it knocks uh, not usually knocks somebody out or common opponents. And, and common opponents came into play in pool B and I think, you know, Rhodes was in a position where they could, they, they couldn't help themselves enough, uh, but they could, they hurt Millsaps by, they beat, they won that game on Saturday, 49, 30. Uh, it gave them, as you mentioned, the head to head win over Millsaps and, and uh, Wash U had the head to head win over Rhodes. So Wash U needed that result. The, the, the thing that the team sitting on the bubble didn't have going into Saturday and this is true in Pool B and Pool C. There weren't a lot of opportunities for big losses to help teams move up the scales. Because in Pool C, you had Mount Union and, and John Carroll playing each other. You had Platteville and Oshkosh playing each other. And then you had Pacific Lutheran Idol. So three of your strongest contenders weren't going to drop out of the list. Uh, Ohio, uh, Illinois Wesleyan uh, beat Augustana, no, beat Elmhurst. And, um, you know, it didn't really leave a lot of opportunity for, for Wabash to move up in there, for Thomas Moore to move up in there. Um, you know, they're just they're people across the country, even, you know, St. Thomas, we mentioned in, in a different field or in a, in a group 
in a year where there were seven pool C bids, they might have been able to play their way in in week 11. But there just wasn't enough opportunity for movement. And I think that was the same thing that that hurt Texas Lutheran in week 11 as well in, in pool B. Really, the only way they could have been helped, I think, was to have this Rhodes Millsap result and also have Framingham State lose to Worcester State and and Framingham State left no doubt uh, 36 nothing victory Wesley left no doubt 47 nothing over Alfred State and th- there really just wasn't a lot of opportunity in week 11 for for teams that were below the line on the bubble to move up into the picture and i think that's part of why it was so easy in a sense to uh, to get the projection out on Saturday night. Usually that's a, a midnight or a 1 a.m. production. But because, you know, so many things didn't actually change from uh, the week before. So the the kind of thoughts that you have going into the week were kind of validated and there wasn't a whole lot of uh, wasn't a whole lot of movement to make. That's really why, um, you know, this particular selection Sunday, we've been talking about different things. We haven't as much been talking about the teams that were selected, although we certainly heard from the Wabash fans and that that's a team that, you know, I, Keith might have mentioned 55-45. I think that's, you know, about how I felt maybe about, um, you know, about them being left out and about St. John Fisher getting in. That that close, because you just never know uh, one from one year to the next what the committee's going to do. So a lot of our focus on Sunday and a lot of fans' focus is on uh, the matchups that were created and, uh, in a sense, kind of the, the brackets that were created, although, in, you know, if you've been watching Division Three football every year uh, in the playoffs for the last eight or nine years, these are not particularly surprising. Uh, Mountain Union, again, has a fairly easy road to Salem. Uh, anybody coming off the West Coast has a somewhat harder trip to Salem. Um, there are still teams that have to go through Texas. There are still teams that have to go through Whitewater. Uh, there are still teams that have to go through Minnesota, even if it's uh, you know eight miles further uh, north uh, through Bethel rather than through St. Thomas or uh, or in many years past through St. John's. Um, some of the interesting things, you know, Keith, I, I felt like, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm usually a fan of my own work if I get it right. Uh, so I felt like I did a pretty good job matching teams up um, in some of our unusual circumstances. Um, and I, I'm not sure that the uh, if there's something that we don't know, you know, for example, if Lebanon Valley isn't allowed to host, um, that could be an issue that could change some of these things. Those are not facts that we generally have uh, at our disposal. But I thought that, um, you know, I just didn't think that Hampton Sydney uh, would be seated in a spot where they would deserve to host. And I didn't think that Franklin would be seated in a spot where they deserve to host. So those were two teams that were each number nine in their regional rankings coming into the weekend and not really... Uh, in a position to significantly move up from those this week. There's those final secret regional rankings, which we'll at least never officially see. Um, but uh, And those could answer some of those questions. But I think, you know, to be honest with you, uh, with with Franklin and Hampton Sydney hosting, maybe this isn't something they necessarily uh, want to show or, or want to leak in a, in a situation like this. I thought that, um, you know, obviously Maryville being where they're positioned, there was, uh, and Millsap's not qualifying for the playoffs. Uh, hurt, hurt, uh, hurt the position of, of Maryville. Maryville could have gone down to play Millsaps via a bus drive. It has to be within 500 miles in the first round whenever possible. Um, and so Maryville could have gone to Wittenberg. I believe Maryville could have gone to Franklin as I was going through and doing mileages on Saturday night. And yeah, Maryville could have gone to Hampton, Sydney. Um, because those schools in the grand scheme of things are not all that far apart. But I just didn't, I was surprised to find Hampton Sydney hosting, and I was surprised 
to find Franklin hosting. The, the counterpoint to that, though, Pat, is who got sent on the road that really deserves a host? And if you go down the list, there there aren't too many teams who, who got the short end of the stick. The one that sticks out is, uh, is Pacific Lutheran at eight and one. But we all know because they're stuck on that D3 island that that uh, they're going to have to play at Linfield in the first round. So um, there would be some outrage about that if this was our first year doing D3football.com. But being that it's uh, well, you know, over, uh, what are we, 15, 14 years in, uh, you know, we, we, we saw that one come in. We know that, you know, the, the, the West Coast Island and the Texas Island, those teams get stuck together because, um, because the directive – of the committee is to put the, you know, the team to avoid as many flights as possible in the first round. So that, so that's not surprising, but I don't see really any other team Pat here that, that got sent on the road in the first round that deserved to host. So, so or that was overwhelmingly deserving of a home game, let's say. And so, you know, you suggest Lebanon Valley, uh, there were no other team where, um, you know, none of these teams are, are nine and one, uh, on the road, except for Framingham State uh, and, and uh, Gallaudet. Gallaudet lost in, in week 11. And I, I thought that too, that hurt, that changed things a lot. There were really a handful of teams uh, who were probably in line for a home game that may have played their way out of a home game in week 11. Week 11. And uh, a lot of them didn't even you know lose close games. You know, we talked about Millsaps, which played its way out of the tournament in week 11. Texas Lutheran played its way out of the tournament in week 10. But you also had Lebanon Valley losing 40 to 25 to, uh, to Albright. You had Gallaudet losing to a 5-5 five and five SUNY Maritime team, 7-6. to six. And um, I'm missing. I'm, I'm forgetting one other well, I, team. I, I, that- well, for example, I don't know if St. Norbert probably wouldn't have been hosting, but they would have avoided playing Whitewater if they had won on Saturday. I think Maryville might have been in position to host Hampton Sydney if uh, Maryville had won. Um, and they finished, if they finished nine and one, uh, that Hampton Sydney might've been going the opposite direction. Um, <clears throat> you know, so there's a, there's a couple games like that. I think those are the uh, other, oh, and, and well, shoot, Ithaca, Ithaca got to host anyway. That was um, the one. <clears throat> yeah. So that brings me to the, so th- that brings me to the, the quadrant of the, or the pod of the bracket that I want to talk about. Um, you know, is the, the one team that I can think of who deserved to host um, that, that isn't is Wesley. Uh, you, you look at uh, Wesley when coming into the week, fourth in the South region rankings uh, behind Millsaps, Millsaps loses. I think it's fairly certain that Wesley has to be number three in those region rankings now because Wesley got into the field and Millsaps didn't. And that was a head to head decision that the committee had to make. So Wesley third in the South plays at Johns Hopkins two in the South. When in reality, both of those teams should be hosting separate games. Um, I put uh, Gallaudet at Wesley, but you could have put uh, a lot of other teams at Wesley at some of the same teams that you've talked about Keith already. We could have put, uh, we could have put Lebanon Valley there. We could have put Hampton Sydney there. That's all sorts of things, all sorts of play teams that could have played at Wesley. And, and that's the, to me, that's the biggest uh, shafting of the first round is how Johns Hopkins, uh, an undefeated conference champ, uh, which won a playoff game last year. So not just, uh, not just a one and out, um, you know, has to, has to play uh, a, a really tough team, not only by our national rankings, but by the regional rankings as well. Yeah, but if you take the name recognition out of it uh, of of Wesley, you're we're basically sending a a pool B team with two Division three losses 
that um, you know maybe a couple weeks ago was well, wasn't even in the field uh, or was certainly on the brink. Uh, you know, if Texas Lutheran had had beaten Harden Simmons, if Millsaps had won in Week Eleven, it may have been those two teams and, and Framingham State in the field and Pool B, and we'd be talking about Wesley not even being in the field. So you know, Wesley, fortunate to be in, certainly deserving because of the schedule they play and, and the quality program they've been over the years. But I don't have a, a huge problem with them being on the road in the first round. Certainly is a tough matchup. Probably uh, the best matchup of the first round besides uh, Pacific Lutheran and Linfield. Uh, in fact, there's only three matchups in the first round that, that um, put teams or that, that match up teams uh, in our top 25. Those, that would be the number 10 um, Johns Hopkins hosting number 15 Wesley, uh, number two Linfield hosting number 13 Pacific Lutheran and uh, number nine, John Carroll hosting number 25 John St. John Fisher. So uh, every other game in the bracket involves a ranked team, uh, just one ranked team except for Hampton, Sydney, Maryville, and Rowan Endicott. Yeah, I mean, I guess that the fact that Hampton's or that Wesley was not likely in the field two weeks ago, I don't think that's really endemic to what happened after week 11. Um, and, you know, I I just think the NCAA, by, via their own regional rankings, just somehow didn't get this right here. And I don't quite know how that happened. Um, you know, for example, if you lump all four of these teams together i guess the one thing that sticks out is that you know um no no it still doesn't work i keep thinking this in my head and it doesn't quite make sense uh, you know they've got the common opponent with uh, framingham and wesley both playing rowan but you know both of them lost to rowan that's not a separating uh factor right there um i just think that in this foursome framingham should be going to johns hopkins wesley should be going to ithaca and that's a, a far more reasonable matchup for that pot. I, I just feel like if that's a situation where, um, you know, they had another hour to rethink that, or maybe something got shuffled around and this is the way the bracket ended up sometime and they didn't go back and, uh, kind of reconsider that. I think that's a, that's a, a spot where they're missing, but to be honest with you, um, you know, besides that and the, the money ball game that gets played in the Northwest and, uh, occasionally on the West coast and in Texas, there's not a whole lot necessarily, uh, to complain about again, I mentioned Franklin not deserving of a home game, um, but you know that's a that's another story for. Uh, it's not there is no other time, but uh, it's it's not as a, it's not a big a deal to me. One of the things I like is that you know if it for all those people who think that the Ohio Athletic Conference is God's gift to Division three football, well, your two teams have a chance to play out uh, to play it out and play in Salem on December twentieth. Similarly, uh, if you're from the WIAC and you think your teams are the, you know, God's gift to Division Three football, well, let's see Platteville and uh, Whitewater meet in Salem. This is the 2013, in a sense, is a year for all of those things to either put up, uh, put up or shut up because we have had a lot of times where, you know, people have complained about WIAC teams knocking each other off and OAC teams knocking each other off. You know, now they have a chance to knock everybody else off. Pat, you do bring up a good point. I think this is a very balanced bracket. You know, for whatever you can complain about, there these are minor complaints compared to some of the bigger complaints we've had in the past, whether it be, you know, undefeated teams playing each other in the first round or Harden Baylor and Mount Union being on the same side of the bracket. These this year the gripes are 
you know, minor to, you know, to middling. I think it's a very balanced bracket, and I'll give you a couple of, of, of reasons why. One reason, you know, again, going back to our rankings, which although they have no influence on how teams are placed in the field, certainly a good way to measure the strength, uh, you know, relative to one another. Each bracket, each eight-team uh, group has four ranked teams in it, except for the Mountain Union group, which has five ranked teams. Um the other way I, I really liked the balance was each power team or each number one seed has another really good storied program it has to get through on the way to the uh, to the stag. But we could have a really great quarterfinal round if you think about you know, Wesley, maybe if, if they get past Johns Hopkins um, and, and the Ithaca Framingham State winner could be Wesley against Mountain Union in the quarters on December 7th. Then you could have Bethel and North Central playing. Uh, you know, and of course they have to get past Platteville and, and Illinois Wesley and Warburg and all those teams. But you could you could have that matchup. Then you could have uh, Whitewater and Linfield playing, and that would be probably the marquee matchup on on December seventh. But all of these would be good. And, and to be honest with you, I'm I'm I, Mary Harden Baylor's probably very happy with with where it got placed. But they could also have a, a really, you know, great quarterfinal game against either John Carroll or, or uh, Hobart or somebody like that. On uh, I, I think personally, I think it could be John Carroll. I watched a bunch of that Mountain Union John Carroll game, and, and the blue streaks look very good, very legit. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see John Carroll uh, in Belton, Texas, on December seventh, and that would be a, a really monster quarterfinal round if you have Mountain Union, Wesley, North Central, Bethel. Water Linfield and uh, and Mary Harden Baylor John Carroll in in the um, quarters couldn't argue with that and I think we had that you know, maybe a year or two ago where it was like the you know the top nine teams in the country uh, eight of them were playing in the quarterfinal round I think that might have been even just last year uh, one of the things that I went through uh, in looking at this bracket uh, in preparation for the podcast Keith was uh, I I took these four quadrants uh, and I basically I put an asterisk next to any team that I thought was a, a legitimate threat to make the semifinals um, just to, as a as a kind of a different measure of how uh, each of these brackets match up um, you know people talk about Mount Union having a, a cakewalk to Salem and that's just not the I, I think it's just not the case frankly um, now you know it's it's the easiest bracket of the four for sure um, but not you know, not completely unreasonable. And again, this is, you know, for the, you know, the fact that they've played uh, a significant number of consecutive home playoff games, not necessarily all because they were the top seed every year, occasionally a, a couple of years. And as recently as 2010, uh, a higher seeded team fell down in front of them and, uh, uh, and was, uh, and did not live up to its half of the bargain in hosting uh, a semifinal game. But I look at the the top left bracket um, I got Mountain Union, obviously a threat to make the semifinals. Uh, I don't remember the last year they weren't. Um, and Wesley, I think that's two teams that I've got asterisks by that, uh, have a legitimate shot to, uh, advance to December 14th, uh, bottom left bracket. Uh, I put an asterisk next to North central, uh, Platteville and Bethel. Uh, I think there's three teams that are, uh, legitimate threats to make the semis. And I would not be surprised by any of them on the top, right. Uh, Whitewater, Linfield, Pacific Lutheran, and I put a star next to Franklin just because, you know, they could potentially not play like they were playing against Bluffton. Um, I would uh, definitely have a, a stronger asterisk if they had uh, beaten Bluffton uh, last week. And then the bottom right, 
Uh, I've got four teams there too. I've got Mary Harden Baylor. I've got Hobart. I've got Jen Carroll and, and I've got St. John Fisher just because I know that they've done it in the past that they're a, you know, they're a, a team that knows how to win on the road in the playoffs. I, I just went cliche at about the 35 minute mark. So uh, I apologize there, but you know, the, the fact of the matter is uh, St. John Fisher has gone through and uh, beaten teams in the first and second round of the playoffs to uh, advance it uh, against the odds, but they have not necessarily been playing uh, teams from the OAC in that scenario either. I mean, they beat, um, you know, they beat Johns Hopkins out of the Centennial uh, a couple years ago. That was uh, one of their wins that helped them advance. They beat Delaware Valley out of the Mac, if I remember correctly. Um, that's not the same as beating someone out of the OAC. You know, one other thing I really liked in terms of the balance is some of the weaker matchups, the weaker first round games, the the winner really has a, a tough second round match. And, uh, you know, the, the number one seeds, you know, you're going to have to really, if you want to move on in this tournament, you're going to have to beat some really good teams. And that's the way the playoffs should be. I know with 32 teams not necessarily being the 32 best teams in the country, you're going to get some automatic qualifiers in who aren't that strong. And you may have to match some of them up in the first round. But I, I thought the teams that may scoot through the first round with, with an easy, not an easy win, but a, a, let's say a favorable matchup, they, they got an unfavorable matchup in the second round. So, you know, Hampton, Sydney, a team that's lucky to be in the season, to be honest with you, you know, it was a, it was a needed a, a, to stop a two-point conversion to win on Saturday to get to to get into the postseason. Okay, two losses. They get a home game in the first round against Maryville. If they win, or if Maryville wins, which is also a two-loss team, second round you take a flight out to either Oregon or uh, or Tacoma, Washington, and you play Pacific Lutheran or Linfield in the second round. So nothing easy there. You, and then you know if for whatever reason you win that, you be you still have Whitewater in front of you. Really, really strong, um, you, you know, part of the bracket. Same thing with the Rowan Endicott game. Both those teams, eight and two, you know, the winner of that game has to fly to most likely uh, to Belton, Texas and play Mary Harden Baylor. I suppose they could um, with the Redlands, Mary Harden Baylor being a ma- uh, rematch. Uh, they could have to fly out to California. So I thought those teams, you know, and even you could maybe say the same thing about the Wittenberg, Lebanon Valley and the winner of that game probably playing Mountain Union. You know, you're really going to have to 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 beat some good teams in this tournament. And if you got a fortunate matchup in the first round, and I didn't think there were too many teams that got got real fortunate matchups in the first round, but if you got one of them, and I guess Franklin Washi was probably another example of two teams who each could have been underdogs in their first round game. Now that they, they get to play a uh, each other in the first round, and one of those teams is going to move on to the second round, well, you're going to move on to the second round most likely against Whitewater. Uh, we took some questions, or we solicited your questions on Twitter for tonight's podcast. Uh, I say tonight, of course, you guys are almost uncertainly, almost certainly, uh, listening to it at some point during the day. Uh, we're recording it at uh, yeah, well past midnight Eastern time at the very least. Um, let's see. Uh, we've done some of these questions. Someone asks, uh, uh, who in your estimation were the first two Pool C teams left out, and what would have been the case for them to get in? I mean, obviously, Wabash is one of them. Um you know, if I go back and look at my board and kind of plow through who I thought might be next after Wabash, uh, I don't know if it's the the decision between Oshkosh or Wheaton or 
it would be Alfred next on the board in the East, and that's not a uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, or Thomas More. I don't know if uh, I probably have to go with Wheaton uh, after that. Wheaton is a two-loss team, but they had a 5.39 strength of schedule, which is 50 points ahead of um, ahead of Oshkosh, which is just a, a really significant number. I have them one and two against regionally ranked opponents because in my final mock regional ranking, Albion, which beat Hope on Saturday, pops into the rankings and Hope drops out. Um, Albion at the 10 spot is not a great win against a regionally ranked opponent, but it's one more than Oshkosh had anyway. Um, I think those are the two that got left out and I really can't think of, uh, of anything else. There's a similar follow-up question as to what it would take to get all three of those YAC teams into the playoffs. And we kind of mentioned that as well, but the boil it down to the bottom, uh, to the, you know, the very, uh, heart of the matter is. Uh, Oshkosh needed to beat somebody who was regionally ranked out of conference. That would have been uh, that would have been the change that they needed. Yeah, really, the way you get the get a, get three teams in in a conference is you, you have to have that three way tie at the top, or you have to have somebody beat somebody. Uh, with Whitewater going ten and zero, that means one team had to lose one game in conference, and another team has to lose at least two two conference games. And that that team with two losses has to have a real strong resume. Uh, if they want to get in, um, Pat, you mentioned that that first question. The answer for me probably would have been uh, probably been Wabash and uh, either St. Thomas or Oshkosh, whoever was on the board in the West at that time. If uh, if uh, Bash was the team on the board in the North, Thomas Moore in the South, and um, that that means Wabash would have been on the board, I guess, ahead of Wheaton. Then, uh, then probably the West team for me, whoever whoever was there between Oshkosh and St. Thomas. Remember that St. Thomas did actually. Um, or we're assuming that they had a win over regionally ranked opponent because they beat Concordia Moorhead. Yeah. And Concordia Moorhead was in my uh, mock regional ranking at nine behind Warburg ahead of Redlands. A couple of other questions, uh, one of which I'll primarily tackle and the other, which I'll throw to Keith. Um, Someone asked if you could change a few things about the process, what would you change? Um, You know, one of the things that I've talked about for a few years now uh, is kind of a pet project of mine actually might not have helped out this year. Unfortunately, um, you know, we are continue to have more and more automatic bids now, 24 of them, um, and headed for 25 and then 26 over the next couple of years. So uh, even though some of those will come away from pool B, we're still going to have very tight pool C's, uh, pictures for the immediate future until some big upheaval changes in division three football, or until we change a little bit about the process. And, um, I'm just going to give you the, the two minute thumbnail sketch of, how I think we could change things and then tell you how this year it might not have done much. Um, but you know, we give everybody who's got seven teams or more an automatic bid. Um, and maybe that's not the way to go. Uh, you know, I've heard people talk about, well, maybe it should be eight teams or maybe it should be nine, but to be honest with you, all that's going to do is trigger another wave of realignment. And we're going to be back in the same situation in a few years without a whole lot uh, of things changing because schools are going to continue to add football because football well, uh, I have to censor myself. Football, it rocks. Let's just put it that way. There was another word, uh, an adjective I wanted to throw in there that probably would not be good for the podcast. Um, so what I want to talk about is how can we uh, just uh, find a way to objectively 
whittle down some of these automatic bids and not give all 24 of these uh, conferences, 25, 26, an automatic bid every year. And one of the models that already exists out there in the NCAA, uh, specifically applied to football, is this thing that they do in Division Two called earned access, where in Division Two, if you are a conference champ and you are uh, in the top eight of your regional poll, then you can jump in and knock out somebody who's an at-large ahead of you. So this is... Um, what I'm looking for is something that kind of actually almost goes the opposite direction. I, 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 first of all, I put the bar a lot lower. We have a lot of conferences and we have a lot of teams in Division Three football. So I postulate, and I'm going to go back through at some point between now and the end of the season or the beginning of next season and, and run some more hard numbers on this and run some more scenarios over previous year's playoffs. But what I would suggest would be is that if your conference champ – is not in the top maybe 15 or not in the top 20 of a regional ranking, then that con- then your conference uh, uh, gives up its automatic bid for the year, uh, and it got- and that spot goes to an at large. Now this year, I'm not sure that we have anybody in the field who really qualifies for that. You know, we do not have uh, we don't have a six and four Christopher Newport. Uh, we don't have a five and five St. Lawrence. Those are the kind of teams who uh, would not have gotten an automatic bid in uh, previous years in the scenario that I'm proposing. But this year, you know, I think of the team that is probably would be the furthest down in a regional ranking is either St. Scholastica or Concordia, Wisconsin. And I think either one of those, I, I think we'd find a spot for them in the top 20 of a regional ranking, uh, probably a spot in the top 15 uh, for, for both of them as well. Uh, I keep scanning over this list and I don't see anybody... Uh, maybe St. Norbert just because of uh, the second loss that they got at the end of the season. But um, I think that that's a scenario where, you know, we can occasionally knock a team or two out who is not going to do anything else other than be cannon fodder for Whitewater or Mount Union or whoever the heavyweight is in any particular year um, and and give a, a an at-large team uh, a, another chance to play. I think that's one thing I would like to change. Um, I will write some more about it. Uh, I've talked to two people about this, uh, both on the football committee and, you know, on the next level up on the championships committee. Uh, I don't know if it gets a lot of traction, but in, in future years, it's only going to get more complicated. And this process is, uh, going to be even more and more restrictive when you get down to, you know, four pool C bids and you'd have, the possibility that uh, in any given year, nobody from your region has a, has a legitimate shot in that large bid. Um, that's a problem. That's not good for division three football. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, I guess, tackle that question in a, in a much quicker way. What if you just put the cap at, three, you know, you can't, you can't have three losses or you can't have four losses. Right. But it, well, okay. So, it still wouldn't have it still wouldn't have helped this year because the only team in the field with uh, more than two losses is Franklin, and one of those losses was to a non-division team in Butler. So it wouldn't have made any difference necessarily this time around either. Well, I I would okay. So I thought about that a little bit. Um, the reason why I, and I don't think that's such a good idea is because that would discourage teams from playing stronger schedules. Uh, you know, yep. somebody who goes uh, seven and three and plays, you know. Butler and Mount Union, um, 
you know, we wouldn't want to discourage that necessarily. So it's, that's why I think that um, having it tied to a regional ranking, which is something that already takes some of those things into account, but also takes strength of schedule into account, um, would give us uh, a better um, a better measure to kind of uh, use as a guide point there. I, I I would hate to do anything that discourages teams from making strong schedules because we've done so much over the last couple of years to go the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I think you could you could certainly argue your point and and you know i don't know how much deeper down the the regional ranking rabbit hole you want to go if we you know we have people that are struggling to understand the system as it is which i I think it's it's pretty straightforward you know maybe the maybe the change you could make is to open up some of the some of the final weekend secrecy after the bracket is released one of the one of the changes going forward could be, you know, release the seeds and release the final regional rankings just so we can pour over all that stuff. Because we have some some fans who grasp the whole process. And, and I think, Pat, it, your your projections, you getting 32 or 32 teams right, shows that if you grasp the process and you look at all the numbers, it's all there in front of you. You should be able to every one of us should be able to look at the same numbers and put the same teams give or take one or two into the field. The other question is one that uh, plays into Keith's other strength as well. So the question is, uh, can the Packers win a game without Aaron Rodgers? Whoa. Yeah, that was, uh, that was totally uh, softball. Not softball, off, off the wall. Let me ask. Um, I think Nate Ware is available, if that helps. <clears throat> well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say if they could pull Tanny from the, uh, from the Cowboys, maybe. They could, uh, they they could win. Actually, they they didn't look too bad um, against the Eagles the week before last. They had about four hundred yards of offense, um, but they they couldn't stop the Eagles when it counted. And and since they played a four o'clock game today, I didn't see hardly any of it. But I know they lost to the Giants, and uh, yeah, the Giants are playing better. But it but you, you can't be all that good of a team if you uh, if if you're losing to the Giants at this point. Uh, they need them back. That's for sure. Keith, you mentioned that you'd watched a, a good portion of the Mountain Union John Carroll game. I listened to a good portion of the Mountain Union John Carroll game, but that doesn't give the uh, the same uh, level of data. So um, I wanted to hear your impressions, well, really of both teams, but since we haven't talked a whole lot about John Carroll from a first-person, eyes-on perspective this year, uh, tell us uh, your take on the Blue Streaks. I, I think they're going to be uh, a tough out in the uh, in the playoffs. Part of the reason is, of course, the quarterback we've talked about, and in uh, in Mark Myers, um, you know, player who started his career at at Pitt, or at least was there at some point in his career. Um, he's a player, and he can, he can really wing it. Um, you know, a tall, lanky guy, and, and they've got some playmakers on the on the outside. I don't, I, I don't think they have any one, you know, great receiver or running back where you have to you have to know their name but they spread the ball around and uh they, they gave um you know they gave they the weird thing is the, the portion of the game that i watched was which was about most of the second quarter uh all the way through the third and i sleep at some point before they they uh finished their scoring john wait Calden. wait wait a but minute they, are uh, you saying that replaying the game at eight o'clock at night is not conducive for watching it yeah, I might. Was it even eight? eight? Later, it was after midnight when I was oh, when I'm I sorry. was watching it. It was even worse. It was late. 
Um, but which which is you know, I, it'd be nice if it was live or something close to it. But I, I know that in, probably in Ohio, um, replaying a high school playoff game gets higher ratings than D three. So uh, Sports Time Ohio has to do what it has to do, and and um, fortunate to be able to record the games. Um, John Carroll left a lot of points on the field against Mountain Union. Right before the half, they had the clock run out on them and get, got tackled inbounds inside the five-yard line. Uh, they ran a play, I think, with about six seconds left and, and uh, couldn't, couldn't call their last timeout. So they left probably three points on the field there. Uh, they had another, another play uh, going the other direction in the third quarter where they, uh, I want to say, missed a field goal or turned it over in, inside the 20-yard line. Uh, but they can score, and they can get down the field in a hurry. So they're going to be a tough, tough out. Uh, if we're looking at maybe John Carroll and, you know, John Carroll at Hobart maybe in the second round, that could be a really good game. The other thing about them was their defense. And we kind of struggled to figure out all year, well, how did they have this defense that they gave up 75 points in 10 games and gave up 42 of those points to Mount Union in Week 11? They, they blitz from every which way. And they gave Kevin Burke, not fits, they gave him a lot of looks. All right? and, and Burke, because he's, you know, even though he's only a junior, he's a seasoned guy, he picked up a lot. You know, he saw a lot of the blitzes coming. He made the right reads, at least, like I said, in, in the portion of the game that I got to watch. I'm not finished watching it, and I'd like to go back and watch the whole thing uh, one more time so I could speak more knowledgeably about it. But um, th- their blitzes were, were were pretty exotic, and I, for a team that doesn't have a quarterback as ex- as as sharp as Kevin Burke back there, uh, it's going to be trouble. You know, um, they're, they're going to throw a bunch at St. John Fisher this week, and uh, and if they if they play on, they're going to throw a bunch of blitzes at whoever else is out there. But but the the real thing that stood out to me from that game is that we I was slow to get on the mount the Mount Union bandwagon because the they you know they only had one starter back on offense and that was Burke. Uh, we thought Germany Woods was going to be an instant star at running back turned out not to be the case. We didn't weren't really familiar with any of their playmakers uh, on the outside. They didn't have a, a, a Pierre Garcon, Cecil Shorts, Jasper Collins type of wide receiver. Well, they finally at, at this point in the season they've developed some playmakers and I think they're as dangerous as any of the other top teams now at this point in the playoffs. And that means, you know, as dangerous as Whitewater, Mary Harden, Baylor, North Central, Bethel. Um, they're, they're offensively with Burke back there with his ability to run and throw and, and, you know, see things, you know, one of the best plays he made in the game was, uh, was a ball that was snapped over his head and he picks up the ball. And instead of trying to make something happen, he just picks it up and throws it out of bounds. And it's it's a simple thing, but it's the difference between making that game-changing mistake, trying to do too much, and just knowing just just a heads-up play, you know, knowing okay, this one's dead, throw it away, we'll live to play another down. And 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 Burke gives them that, but they have um, they have a, a shifty running back now in Bradley Mitchell. They have a couple of playmakers uh, at the wide receiver spot. I was real impressed with uh, with Luke Meacham. They also have kind of a speed burner in in Gainer. So I think Mount Union. Um, impressed me as much in that game as John Carroll did. And I know it was a two-pronged, long answer to a short question, but it's the podcast, and that's what we do here. <laughs> uh, that's true. So Brian Gaynor, I did not see a whole lot of him against Heidelberg. Um, that might be you know, one of the things that they, uh, um, that they could use. You know, I thought a little bit about the possibility, for example, 
of them using Therese Scott, a guy who's been, uh, you know, a successful backup quarterback for them in uh, the, the copious amounts of garbage time that uh, Mountain Union tends to have. Um, you know, maybe them trying to work him in at wide receiver and maybe, you know, who knows, maybe that's something under wraps that we see in week 14 or something like that, that kind of comes on and, and blows everything away. Um, but it did seem to me like uh, when I was at Heidelberg that, you know, they had those three receivers who, you know, had not, none of them had breakaway speed. And, you know, like we've talked about like, uh, like shorts or Garcon before him or uh, Denton or, you know, uh, previous years. Um, but they all seem to, um, they all seem to have risen to the occasion here over the last few weeks against their, uh, against their tougher opponents. So uh, tell me as a, especially as a former defensive back, what am I missing about these guys? Well, I think you just have me uh, because pretty strong guy for D3. Um, and, and it doesn't mean he lacks speed. He went, he went, he made a play, a long touchdown catch in, in a game where, um, you know, it, it was a ball that, that Burke really threw out there and Meacham had to go get it and dive for it in the end zone. And he, he bought it, brought it down, made the catch, uh, diving, falling down the end zone. So he certainly got the athleticism to, to run and, and catch up with the ball, but I think he's just a big, strong guy too. And it, it's tough for a, if you're a D3 defensive back and you're like 185 and you're going up against a guy who's got to be – I'm, I'm not looking at the roster in front of me, but I'm guessing he's 200 pounds. That's a, that's, it's going to be a tough guy to get – you know, those Mountain Union receivers use their body position well. You're gonna, it's going to be hard to go through that guy to break up a pass or to, or to bring him down on a third and six and they, they throw it for five yards on a slant. You've got to tackle him and hold him up. Um, you know, before he gets to the sticks, I think him and, uh, and, and Jack Nichols bring a little bit of that. And, uh, and I think some of their other guys Gainer being one of them, I think they do have some speed and, uh, and they're going to be tough. And I think, you know, Burke and Bradley Mitchell running, those two guys are hard. Uh, it'd be hard to stop in the open field. Mitchell is, is really shifty and, and Burke, I think he could put some moves on when he wants to, but he's just fast and, and he's a tough kid. He, he, I don't want to make this comparison, but you remember the way Shane McSweeney used to just for Wesley, he would just run, you know, whenever everything broke down, he could just throw the ball and, and run over people for the first down. Yeah. Burke's got a little bit of that in him, not the same body type by any means, but he's, he's, he, he's just got that, uh, so cliche. I hate to see, like warrior mentality, but the guy's going to get, get you the first down, whether it's with smarts, with grit. I, I think, uh, my theory at the beginning of the season was as long as they had him, they had a chance. But now I think they have the playmakers surrounding him, and they have their standard, pretty good Mountain Union defense that um, that that I think they're gonna they're gonna be um, you know they'll be around for a while. And, and I don't know if I thought at the beginning of the season that that was definitely going to be the case. When I talked to Mitchell after the Heidelberg game a couple of weeks ago, um, and he is he's listed at five six one sixty five. Um, it- that's pretty legitimate. I mean, you know, when you talk about five six, so you, you can't really exaggerate. Uh, if 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 that's listed at five six, so you think that's really five five? I don't think it really matters. Um, but he's a guy. You know, that's going to make him a guy who's hard to find, frankly, behind uh, big Mount Union uh, linemen. But the thing I like about him is he's a guy who's worked his way up. I think he told me he. Uh, thought he started the season at maybe about number six on the running back chart, but that means too, as a little guy, um, you know, he hasn't gotten hit as much, uh, as somebody would, who'd been the, who would have been the starter from week one. So for him not having been the starter until week eight, 
you know, that saves him uh, a little bit of uh, durability for uh, for what they might need from him down the stretch. And uh, I I got the same impression of him uh, from the Heidelberg game as, as you got from him uh, in the John, in the John Carroll game. I really think that kid is uh, is is pretty impressive, and he's going to be a, a maybe a different style running back. Obviously, certainly a different style running back than uh, the Chuck Moores and the Dan Pews of the world, uh, and even uh, Nate Kamick. But um, you know, as the uh, has the ability if he stays healthy uh, to you know to be a, a running back for them for quite some time. Yeah, and, and you mix that in with the things they're doing offensively with with its uh, Burke is running the read option, but they're also running the the you know bubble screens and the and the package plays where uh, they're, they're giving Burke the chance to decide uh, at the snap whether it's going to be a run or whether they're going to throw it to, to these two receivers on the outside based on, on where the numbers are, uh, where, where Mount Union offense has the numbers advantage. Um, I think they're really dangerous offensively. And, and going into this year, we knew, okay, Vince uh, Karras is, is a you know, longtime defensive coordinator. He's a defensive guy, that, and the defense has started some starters back. They're going to be okay, but are they going to have the playmakers on offense? And, and now they have them, and I think um, you know, that, that makes them just as dangerous as, as, as previous Mount Union teams. We talked about uh, Gallaudet losing Gallaudet, maybe costing themselves a home game or at least the ability to uh, host a game somewhere off-site, uh, maybe at Catholic University down the road or maybe somewhere else in the D.C. area. Um, but what's more important, frankly, than the fact that they lost to SUNY Maritime and they only scored six points was uh, a couple of things. One, uh, they were really bottled up uh, offensively quite a bit. And, you know, SUNY Maritime obviously sees the uh, option on a fairly regular basis in practice because they run that themselves. Um, but uh, Todd Bonheo, the quarterback for the Bison, getting hurt on the uh, second, their second to last offensive play, the play before they scored the touchdown and then um, and then the failed two point conversion attempt. Um, Keith, you know, you and I know this from having watched um option teams in the past that's a highly specialized position uh takes a, a lot of reads and a lot of decision making and it's really hard for a backup to just step in and take that spot if that's where Gallaudet has to go next week against Hobart yeah that's a really good good observation Pat that no team can afford to lose its quarterback but to the degree which you put the ball in, in your quarterback's hands is how valuable the guy is if you know if you're throwing if you're going to throw 50 times a game and you lose your best thrower, you're in trouble. It's, it's the same deal with the option, except it's even more pronounced because that, that quarterback is making a read on every play. So, you know, even when you snap the ball, um, now the new quarterback has got to come in. He's got to deal with all the stuff every other quarterback has, has to deal with, the crowd, the tempo, controlling the huddle, whatever. But he's also got to make a read and make the correct read on every single play, just the same way the defense has to make the correct, you know, know the correct assignment on every play to stop the option. Uh, the quarterback has to, has to make the correct read. So that's gonna, that would be a, a tough, uh, tough draw for, for Gallaudet. But I... I think too, if that that injury didn't happen till the very end of that game, that they were already struggling at that point. And uh, it, it's an offense that, if Hobart plays it well, and, and Hobart it plays in a, in a conference where they've seen the the triple option a couple times during the year, um, that uh, that that maybe they'll be able to stop it. It was interesting, uh, not to spend more time on this game, but it was interesting uh, watching that game online uh because the it the the key points of that came during halftime of the Mount Union John Carroll game so I flipped over and watched it and watching everybody talk about why they thought it was a bad decision 
for uh, for Gallaudet to go for it on a two-point conversion here in the final minute. So there's about 3.48 left, I think, when they score the touchdown. Remember, their starting quarterback is out. They've only scored six points all afternoon. Um, and so instead of uh, putting the – instead of taking the relatively assured extra point, I think with a kicker who's something like 31 of 34 on PATs for the season – they go for two and the opportunity to win it. And here's the reason why, in my mind, and Keith, uh, if you tell me what you think from the thumbnail sketch I just gave you. But basically, um, you know, Gallaudet hadn't really put drives together. They hadn't put any points on the board until that moment. And who knew if they were ever going to get another opportunity to score? Because even in overtime, when you get the ball at the 25, that's a really long field goal in Division Three. And if you don't have your quarterback, you may never get within 15 yards of the end zone the rest of the day. Yeah, I, I I buy that that you know you're you're on the road. You don't have your quarterback. You want to end it as soon as possible. You, there's no reason to want to extend the game. And normally, the better team wants to extend the game, while the team that's playing better. Um, but but also too, you may want to consider this: is that uh, once you're once you're already in the field by by automatic qualifier, you know you don't have anything to lose uh, in week eleven. And I don't know if that played to the. Into the way a lot of these teams played on Saturday, you know, I mean, you know, Ithaca, Cortland, I don't think they they, tr- you know, try any less hard in that game. But but yeah. um, but knowing that you're in already um, certainly may have made a difference for for Levin Valley and, and and other teams that that were in the field. Uh, other things that we do on this podcast traditionally, we run through triple take. I wanted to mention one more thing uh, that is completely unplayoff related or unrelated to the playoffs. Um, and that's Misericordia doing what we thought maybe even dare say hoped they might do before the uh, season ended as they picked up their first win on Saturday. Uh, their only win of the season, the only win in program history uh, by defeating FDU Florham. I'm pretty sure wasn't that it. That was in triple take. It, it, yeah, yeah, you're it, right. It was be- in triple take. It's like it's a unintentional segue. <laughs> Yeah, you, which is what I drive to... around on when I'm a tourist. No, wow, not at all. Uh, you had that one teed up, and no, you were good until <laughs> until the the, the tourist show. Until it went off the rails. No segues in Paris, by the way. I did not see anybody doing that. Um, so triple take game of the week. John Carroll at Mount Union. Oh, let's see. Uh, you took John Carroll at Mount Union. Ryan took John Carroll at Mount Union. It's um, that was a pretty good game. Yeah, it, it it was actually not that great of a game for for a while. Well, it was weird because the score was was you know, Mountain Union way out in front, but but John Carroll was playing well, and I'm kind of glad they made it close. Only only because as they go into the playoffs, you, you know they they could be a dangerous team, and and um, I, I didn't know if I necessarily want to see them get blown out and going to play kind of limp into the playoffs. Uh, surprisingly close. Ryan took Louisiana College at Hardin Simmons. Uh, Louisiana College won by 12, 46-34. I don't know if that qualifies as surprisingly close or not. I, at the very least, um, Redlands can thank Hardin-Simmons for uh, Redlands getting a trip to Texas. I'm not sure if Redlands is necessarily too thankful about that, but it's when uh, Hardin-Simmons knocked off uh, Texas Lutheran the way they did last week that it opened up the playoff uh, picture for the strangeness we had in Pool B this week. And that would have been a very big change because if you would have paired Texas Lutheran and Mary Harden Baylor, yeah, then you would have three West Coast teams in the field, and somebody would have had to would have had to fly somewhere, and that probably 
meant the committee would have been inclined to send to break up Pacific Lutheran and Linfield. Oh, I don't know about that. That would be nice. Um, but that would have meant three flights. So I'm not sure if that's the case. So you could get away or, well, let's see. I have to think about that again for a second. Texas Lutheran at Mary Harden Baylor. Uh, if you sent Redlands to Linfield, uh, then you'd have to also fly Pacific Lutheran out somewhere else. Um, so that's uh, one flight uh, that they don't have to pay for. Uh, they would have just sent Redlands to somewhere like North Central or something like that uh, to to get them out or to Whitewater or something like that. Oh, well, so PLU was... Uh, was I think they were destined... Stuck either way. Yeah, I think so, to be honest with you. The only... I can't think of what would have changed that, to be honest with you. Um, there's, you know, more money and more money's not happening. Uh, and it seems like it's even less money this year. Um, my surprisingly close game was Catholic at Bridgewater. Catholic actually beat Bridgewater, not only kept it close, uh, beat them for the first time since 99. And I don't get to shout out my alma mater too much on the football site recently. So yay Cardinals. Keith, uh, Mount St. Joe at Thomas Moore. I, you know, I didn't look at the margin of defeat in this game. Mm, I, I, I whiffed on that one. Let's move along. Uh, most like likely 59, top 29, 13. Most likely top 25 team to get upset. Uh, Ryan takes Millsaps. Ding. Uh, I took Heidelberg. Yeah. Okay. That didn't happen. And oh, hey, let's see. An hour and seven or eight minutes into the podcast. Congratulations, Cartel Brooks, who uh, is uh, who ran for 465 yards and now has the record. Uh, presuming nobody goes for 466 or more in the uh, playoffs, that means he will be in the record book. And Octavius McCoy, who ran for 455 yards, gets bubkiss that doesn't get listed the the number they're now that now he's number two before they even print the record book yeah i think they still print number two in the record book don't they i don't think so no i mean in the book that i have that's how it's listed it's just one guy uh there might be a list in some other book somewhere of the top 10 single game rushing performances but yeah this is it and you uh i liked your point in uh snap judgments on sunday or saturday um, that neither of those, uh, that both of those guys has had more than one fantastic rushing game this season. Yeah, um, McCoy and uh, Cartel Brooks had each had a game over 300 yards rushing. So I don't think the 400 yard plus game was a fluke. And I, I think uh, to further that point, Baldwin Wallace finished the season, I believe, six and four. Uh, was certainly a pretty solid team, especially defensively. So for for Brooks, for 465 yards against them, I think he had an 81-yard touchdown run, something like that. But he also had 38 carries. So it was a pretty legitimate 465. It was, uh, wasn't fluky at all. Yeah, his last touchdown uh, put the team up 42-7 with about uh, four minutes or so to go in the game. Uh, Keith, you took Bethel. Um, Bethel certainly had the opportunity to lose, and they, from what I understand, they didn't look great. Uh, because I, you know, because I'm Catholic and I'm in Minnesota, I occasionally hear about St. John's and St. Thomas games at church, even when I'm not at them. And that was the scouting report I got. So take that for what uh, it's worth. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't think I would, it wasn't surprisingly close, nor was it an upset or anything of that ilk. So I don't get any credit for that. <laughs> On your radar, Alfred. Okay. Kalamazoo, uh, and everyone, um, yeah, actually, this was a week in which there were a lot of teams that weren't on the radar. There was a whole lot of games that were really interesting that that didn't get onto the radar. But you also took Platteville Oshkosh. Yeah, I, I think I did. I think I did all my categories wrong. I should have made 
Uh, I should have made Platteville Oshkosh game of the week, and therefore I could have used, uh, I think we get to Ithaca somewhere later. Yeah, I could have used that as my number 20 team getting upset, and uh, Bethel could have been something somewhere else. Uh, I did this all wrong. Uh, let's leave it at that. <laughs> Rivalry game you're most interested in. Ryan got yours. I got um, uh, I got John Sadak and Mark Simons, Rowan TCNJ rivalry, and that's where your Cordica wow. game comes in. What? That's, John Sadak. Hey, John Sadak. That's, that's a pull. <laughs> that's a deep, deep D3 history pull there. <laughs> I'm defining the spirit of Division Three history. Um, game played on Friday night, which kind of slips below the radar. And frankly, uh, TCNJ just got crushed in that game. Uh, Rowan did uh, not really let them hang around much. Yeah, I hope you weren't expecting me to add much to that. I think you you're the Jersey guy. (laughs) Cortica, the the Cortica Jug game. That was a that was a that was a pretty good game. Yeah, and I I, this is where I'm saying I should have made that my most likely team to get upset because I I, a feeling maybe that was coming that um there were a couple teams who were in position. I think you even uh, you even wrote this later in triple take. You even said that it's not a post. uh, It's not a hindsight thing you've written about the fact that you've got them all in the wrong order yes yes i i not just making that up um but you know it gets to a point on friday morning where you got to publish a thing or else nobody's gonna <laughs> see it because everybody would be gone from work on friday and uh yeah uh, you know the only thing worse than uh, not doing triple take at all is doing it so late that no one actually reads me and when the editor is uh, forty thousand feet over the atlantic and not in touch with anything it's uh there's it's just you man who has the least momentum going into the playoffs uh ryan took rowan i mean they didn't show it this weekend but who knows going into next week i took maryville yay give me something i i even noticed that i could have picked them as my top 25 upset pick but i didn't really think it was much of an upset and you took wesley um you know i mean who knows what momentum wesley gets and gains by playing alfred state so at least you got that going for you yeah that but i also couldn't have lost that on saturday that was true either way that they played a team (laughs) that wasn't going to give it a, a playoff type of push and uh, and to be honest, it, it, I guess you can count yeah. UNC Charlotte as as a team that pushed Wesley, but uh, Wesley hasn't played a big D three game you know since October. Uh, well, you talk about things that didn't have any impact on Saturday. We get to my answer for the uh, next and final one: a cougar, a panther, and a tiger walk into a bar. And by the way, I do not want to be that bartender. Uh, Ryan takes the Cougars of Misericordia, who we talked about. Uh, Misericordia plays and uh, defeated. FDU Florham. I took Iowa Wesleyan, the Tigers, who didn't play this week, but it gave me an opportunity to talk about uh, the fact that we uh, had low expectations for them and they lived up to them. And then you took Chapman, uh, Panthers, who the, the one lost team other than Greenville, who nobody was talking about. Yeah, and and you know I don't know if part of the reason is because a bunch of their games are are late on Saturday where. Uh, no, not too many people are, are, you know, all the other finals are in and, and there's all that one game still highlighted in yellow on the scores page that's still going on. <laughs> a lot of times that was Chapman. And uh, but I, I don't I actually don't think it, it has all that much to do with that. I just think that it's, it's not a name program yet. And they don't they don't unlike some of the other teams in, in the Sky Act, they don't play the other strong teams on the West Coast. So they don't have weeks where their their name is is you know, around on the site. And for them to be eight and one, I think is a, is a pretty big step for them, but they also were kind of eight and one, but never really in the playoff picture because they, they didn't have that strength of schedule. And to be honest, 
uh, that's a team that could have used a 10th game. And if they had played that 10th, you know, the same way Redlands goes and schedules Mary Harden Baylor, if Chapman goes and finds someone, uh, you know, Cal Lutheran pl- plays at Linfield, if Chapman could have found someone that would have been a, a regionally ranked team uh, late in the season, they would have been in the playoff discussion at least. Obviously, would, they would have also had to beat them too. But um, but eight and one, I think, is a big, pretty big step forward for them. So I'll uh, I'll, I'll give them a little shout out here in the the Cougar Tiger Panther Cat section of Triple Take. Uh, Chapman's non conference games against Puget Sound one and eight and uh, four and six Whitworth, and that's the reason why. Um, we've not been talking about them, uh, in terms of the uh, playoff picture. So let's see what else is coming up this week. We've got, uh, 16 pretty interesting games on Saturday. Uh, well, we've got 16 games on Saturday. Um, most of which will be pretty interesting. Uh, you know, there are always a lot of blowouts in the first round of these playoffs folks. So, um, the good thing is that, uh, on that Saturday afternoon, about, uh, 2:45 Eastern to about 3:45 Eastern. We usually have, you know, almost all 16 of those games, barring the West Coast game, coming down to the final minutes. And often there's a lot of games where uh, there are close games. So even though uh, Mount Union is likely to handle Washington and Jefferson, and even though Albion is uh, not likely to be in the game at the end of it against North Central, there'll still be a lot of other games, which will be key. So watch the scoreboard on Saturday because that will be a uh, pretty big afternoon for that. Of course, uh, all of our around the region columnists will still file columns this week. We will talk about, uh, you know, playoff teams in their region. And then starting next week, we will have playoff specific features. Uh, You may even get uh, more than seven of those in the course of a week. Uh, Keith and I, and uh, selected other division three football cognoscenti is the word that came to mind i apologize for that wow uh c-o-g-n-e-s-c-n-t-i people who claim to know stuff uh i think is how that would be defined in the webster dictionary or in the um (laughs) i can't come up with another slyak team for the football crowd right now uh in the iowa wesleyan dictionary um so uh, we will do our uh, surprises, uh, upset picks, and disappointments. That's an annual column in Around the Nation that is uh, one that I enjoy quite a bit um, because we get to tell you what's going to happen. And uh, yeah, and oftentimes it happens. Um, we will have playoff team capsules. Uh, we do those every year. I would say expect to see those about Wednesday. Those are a lot of work. Um, of course, we'll still do team of the week. Uh, so that's a SID nomination still due at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. Play of the week from coaches. We've had a couple of uh, videos nominated so far. I know obviously not everybody played this weekend, but we still had a significant number of games. So hopefully we get some good nominations there by 5 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. Uh, we uh, Let's see. We have triple take on Friday and triple take uh, in the playoffs consists of the three of us actually – predicting what we think the scores will be so uh, of every single playoff game. So what that means is you get a chance to take a look at those and get a general idea of what kind of game we think it's going to be. If all three people pick the same team, then uh, you know feel pretty confident that that's who we think is going to win. But if we all pick that game to be close, uh, just remember that that's you know, a, a, um, a reflection of the fact that there still could be an upset. If there's a split decision, which happens occasionally, uh, two to one versus one to two. Think of those games as the real big toss up. And if everybody thinks that that game is going to be a blowout, well, 
then you're probably looking at uh, Whitewater playing St. Norbert or something of uh, along those lines. Uh, I think that in the past we've done pretty uh, pretty well with that, giving you guys an idea of what we think those games will be like. Uh, SIDs, this is for you if you're listening at the hour and uh, nineteen some minute mark. Um, yeah, because you have nothing else to do. Um, all region nominations are open, and they are open through the Sunday night after Thanksgiving, which I believe is Sunday, December first. Uh, you'll get an email about that from me uh, on Monday, also. But I wanted to give you guys a head up, heads up now, uh, because uh, all region feeds into All American. All American is announced in the pregame show at Stag Bowl Forty One on Friday night, December twentieth in Salem, Virginia. Uh, there are other things that go on. This is a big week for us. I don't know if you noticed. Um, bracket challenge is on the front page right now. You join the bracket challenge. Our friends over at D three photography.com have been hosting this for us for a while. Uh, this is for bragging rights only. So those of you who are student athletes and coaches and spectators can all maintain your eligibility. Uh, should not have any issues with that. Um, I think Keith will still continue to write, uh, but we got a lot of other stuff to write this week. He's, I'm hoping on him, uh, leaning on him to help me out with those team capsules because those are, those are really, those are really a lot of work. Um, Keith, did I miss anything else that we do uh, leading into week twelve? No, the one thing that we maybe should point out though is that the play of the week. Uh, the ECAC teams that will have games this ah, week, yes. I think those those teams will be eligible for play of the week. Sure. Uh, and, and I guess uh, team of the week, does team of the week go forward after week no, 11? No, we're done with team of the week. Uh, we can focus uh, on our other awards. Uh, and, you know, team of the week for D3hoops.com. If your football season is over and you're still listening, um, <laughs> come join us at D3hoops.com where – Jack Taylor at Grinnell is making a mockery of everything that's going on. And uh, the number three teams in both preseason polls have already lost and all sorts of things happening at D3hoops.com, uh, which Gordon Mann is thankfully manning for us over the course of the next few weeks while um, up to my eyeballs in football. So for Keith McMillan and for everybody else here at D3football.com, that's the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 18th, 2013 playoffs are next roll tide roll tape roll tape like george michael two spools going in opposite directions so all the tape just pulls on the floor remember the sports machine wow that was a that's a so many levels of meta on that you you have to know who george michael is you have to have watched it enough to to uh remember the tape and the spool that was awesome